Welcome to 8 with 8, a podcast from Ohio State Support Team 8, where we share what's on our minds and what's in the research from the field of education. In today's episode, we're going to spend some time working on our flexibility. No, this did not suddenly become a fitness podcast. We're talking today about assessment flexibility. As we continue our season on resetting and restarting education for students with disabilities, it is more important than ever to ensure that assessments of all types are truly designed to be accessible to students with disabilities, meaning that nothing about their disability is getting in the way of them showing what they know and what they can do. And that means that we as educators have to be creative and flexible. Thankfully, we're joined today by two SST experts in this topic, and they have eight great considerations for you as you think about how to create more flexible assessments for your own students. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Tracy Mail, an educational consultant with State Support Team 8, and I have a focus on all things access including assistive technology and universal design for learning, or UDL. I'm part of the Ohio UDL Collaborative, where I work with my friend, Sherry. Hi, yes, my name is Sherry Smith. I am a consultant for State Support Team 6. I am also a member of the UDL Collaborative and co-chair of the UDL Implementation Research Network, SIG, the Implementation SIG, which is a special interest group. My background is primarily in special education um, with a graduate focus being in the inclusive classroom and educational leadership. That's great. Thanks for joining me today, Sherry. And uh, let's start out with a little quiz. What is one thing that all educators do with all students? Well, Tracy, all educators provide instruction, but also when you think about it, all teachers give assessments to check for understanding. From formative checks to statewide tests, it's something we as educators do all the time. The hard part is figuring out if you're getting a true picture of what your students know and can do. So today let's talk about accessible assessments and eight things educators should consider when designing flexible assessments. Awesome. I can't wait to talk about this. So let's start out by acknowledging that, as you said, all teachers provide instruction. Assessments should be aligned to that instruction and based on grade level standards. So are students not doing well on state assessments, benchmark assessments, or even formative measures because they truly don't have the knowledge and skills? Or do they not have the opportunity to learn grade level content and skills through their instruction? Yeah, and that would be an equity issue, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. All students have a right to grade level instruction, whether it's through extended standards and learning progressions or the Ohio learning standards. Remember, essentially assessments are, as I said before, finding out what students know and can do, using or designing the right assessment allows teachers to deliver the appropriate instruction. So that takes us to our problem, equitable access to assessment. With the requirements of the use of high quality student data in OTES 2.0, many educators are revisiting what makes their assessments high quality. So they can really be sure they're responding to a true need and not a false negative. In other words, when the assessment doesn't truly indicate what a student 
knows or can do. Right. And a classic example of this is when a student gets every answer wrong on lengthy text-heavy questions, but can correctly answer the same questions in class. For those students, it actually becomes a test of their reading skills. And if they struggle to read or decode the questions, they may not be able to give the correct answer, even if they know the content. It's a matter of cognitive overload. So all of their focus is on decoding and not on understanding the question. Sherry, um, I think you have a great specific example of this. Yes, I do. I have a great example of sort of that flawed assessment design. A couple years ago, I met an intervention specialist who, who actually shared this story with me. She had been working with a teacher on ways to accommodate students with disabilities in Spanish 1. The Spanish teacher admitted that she was not well suited to do this because, um, and I'm kind of putting in quotes here, those students aren't typically in my class. Quite frankly, there's a waiting list for my class and only the top students get in, unquote. So really what she was describing was a, a competitive situation to even be in the room with her and learning the content. Yikes. The, inter the intervention specialist, knowing the student's rights to a free appropriate public education and knowing that the student needed a foreign language credit for her post-secondary goal to attend a four-year college, tried to find a way to support both the teacher and the student. After the intervention specialist dug into the student's file, she realizes that she realized that she needed to further discuss a couple points of the evaluation team report or the ETR with the teacher so that she could, she and the teacher could intentionally design the unit assessments, which by the way, the student was failing. And Spanish was the student's only F. The potential barriers from the ETR were number one, working memory. Testing in the report indicated that there were real deficits here, possibly more than the Spanish teacher had ever encountered before, as I said, because of the competitive situation for even being kind of accepted into that class. And number two, reading level. It was a bit lower uh, than grade level. And again, um, possibly different than the top students, um, kind of quoting top students, the Spanish teacher was accustomed to accepting into her class. The solution for the Spanish teacher, intervention specialist, and student after she gained access to the class really boiled down to flexible assessments. So flexible assessments could be the solution for many students, especially those identified as having a disability, not to mention other marginalized groups such as English learners and other students with historically fewer opportunities to access education. So we invite you as listeners to think about examples of students as we share with you eight things to consider when designing flexible assessments. So let's get started. The first is access to written text. If decoding and reading ability is not what is being measured or the point of the assessment. So text readers, uh, recording of text, and visual or graphic representations lessen the cognitive load for students, both in learning and in showing the teacher in day-to-day -day lessons or formative assessments exactly what they know. So the teacher can respond with the necessary instruction. 
that's a really important point, Tracy. If teachers want to create or select flexible assessments, they need to design multiple ways for students to access written text to make sure the text itself isn't the barrier. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, our second thing to consider is written response. Using speech-to-text features allows any student to generate voice composition, editing, and commenting to Google Docs or other electronic forms of assessment. Sometimes these features exist within a student's communication device. And, and keep in mind that this also might be a required part of the communication profiles that exist within the IEP. That's so important to keep that IMP, IEP in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, a third thing is time to process. This should be considered when students have gained the knowledge through instruction but have an actual processing delay to access the information. It might take them a little longer to formulate or come up with an answer. So let's face it, if a student hasn't learned or been exposed to the content, no amount of time to process will help them succeed on an assessment. So this also seems to be an overused and sometimes misused accommodation if processing time is not the actual barrier for students. So, you know, we encourage listeners to keep this in mind and thoughtfully include extra processing time on assessments and not just as a blanket accommodation for all students because not all students really need it. Yeah, yeah. So something to consider is not waiting until the last five minutes of the class to give assessments if you know especially if you know that some students might just need more time. Well, the fourth thing to consider is clarity. The Ohio Accessibility Manual references this several times. Instructions and procedures should be simple, clear, and intuitive. Um, The item or task material used should be clear in an accessible text format. And I'm kind of quoting from the manual here. The item or task material uses clear and accessible visual elements. So it's, it's, it's a really an expectation of all of our assessments. Mm-hmm. And, and think about it. How many times have your students missed questions because the directions were just not clear? Lots. Clear is kind, right? <laughs> right. As educators, we need to be very clear in our directions. Reread them. Have a peer read them. Even consider asking for feedback from your students. Another consideration under clarity is clear alignment to the standard. If our assessments aren't clearly aligned to what the students really need to know and to be able to do, then we're not getting the most out of them. Simply put, clear assessments yield higher quality student data. Mm -hmm. One quick tip I found is to just have the students read the directions first before beginning in the assessment. Go ahead and try this the next time you're evaluating. That's a great idea. Um, So now let's move on to the fifth thing to consider, and it is access to accommodations with all assessments, even formative assessments. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard the question asked, do we need to use accommodations on formative assessment? And my answer is absolutely, if you really want to know what the student knows. So remember that Accommodations are just leveling the playing field and allow each student access to the assessment. 
it's not making something easier, it's not changing the expectation. So using accommodations actually bridges barriers for students. So you're measuring the skills the assessment was actually designed for. Also without them, some students become anxious and fearful and this can negatively impact the rest of their day and oftentimes lead to behavior issues. There's that um, academic and behavioral connection there. Some students can be thrown into fight or flight, uh, thinking and worrying only about the assessment and will miss everything else that happens from that point on in the classroom. It's just not worth it to not give accommodations. I completely agree, Tracy. All right, the sixth thing to consider is environment or sensory, sensory considerations. Really try to understand your students' experience. Students with disabilities who have documented experiences can give a clue into their personal needs, but sometimes there are needs that are just frankly undocumented. Think about ways to be flexible with the testing environment that still guard the quality and reliability of the test. Whether it's seating choice, flexible seating options, or lighting, teachers who provide flexible environments are being mindful of the test taker's experience. One teacher I observed would have calming music quietly playing before classroom assessments. I love calming music. I listen to it when mm -hmm. I work. It helps me yeah. uh, be more productive. Yeah. So, Let's move on to the seventh consideration, and that is executive function. Executive functions are cognitive processes that everyone uses, every person on the planet uses to regulate and organize themselves. Dawson and Guard describe eight executive functions. Emotional control, inhibitory control, or being able to stop yourself from doing things, uh, goal setting and planning, organization, initiation or starting stuff, uh, working memory, shift or, you know, shift is like transitioning, um, and ultimately self-monitoring of all these executive functions. And working memory is one of the earliest to develop and plays a huge role in the success of assessments. Right, right, Tracy. So if we think back to that Spanish example, the intervention specialist um, had that working memory deficit um, barrier to sort of tackle in, in the assessment design. So she sat down with the Spanish teacher and they came up with a workable plan. They realized that a repeated part of the Spanish unit assessment was verb conjugation and being able to correctly use those verbs and throughout the assessment. The student knew how to conjugate. She had verbalized it to the intervention specialist. So once that was communicated to the Spanish teacher, they thought about chunking the assessment into two different parts. So first, earlier in the day or the day before, the student would create sort of this verb conjugation chart that would act as her scaffold when she took the test um, with her classmates. Um, so she, she actually used that first part um, on the class or on the, the assessment in class. This brings up another kind of major caution for educators, and that's access to grade level content. Mm -hmm. Sometimes children or students, due to false negatives, um, or in, in the areas of need that I, I just mentioned, are only given the most basic and, and least 
complex components of grade level material because the assessments are indicating that they still need to master those basic elements. In the Spanish example, the student really wasn't able to hold all that information in her working memory. She needed graphic organizers and structured notes to scaffold her thinking and application to new concepts while she was learning. And in this particular situation, during the assessment itself, to truly gauge what she knew. That is a great solution. And the best thing is that they collaboratively arrived at that solution. That's awesome. Um, right. The eighth consideration is social-emotional learning. And uh, emotional control, as we heard earlier, is another early developing executive function. The CASEL website, C-A-S-E-L.org, says social-emotional learning is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals. So you can see how important these skills are to develop to successfully access assessments. You can do this by removing more punitive, high-stakes assessment situations and teaching relaxation techniques when stakes are a little higher to reduce anxiety because we know we can't get away from all high, high stakes testing. But uh, keeping the, uh, the main issue around learning and not just testing. I highly recommend the CASEL website for uh, fabulous information on social emotional learning and what it means to educators and students. Right, thank you for sharing that great resource. And and really, there are so many things educators can do to support students. As a quick recap of the eight things we talked about today, um, let's think about ways to flexibly design our assessments in regard to written text, written response, time to process, clarity, use of accommodations, environmental and sensory considerations, executive functions, and social-emotional learning. Those are really good things to think about. And as listeners, we thank you for sticking with us. Uh, when Sherry and I sign off, we challenge you to ask yourselves, how can I develop flexible assessments to improve equitable access for each student and get better data? We suggest choosing one thing uh, from the resource document and trying it for a couple weeks, then maybe adding another one. Good luck, and your students will thank you. And that's it for another episode of 8 with 8. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to both Tracy and our guest, Sherry Smith, for these helpful ideas on how to increase the flexibility and accessibility of our assessments. Sometimes educators can find UDL and access considerations to be overwhelming because there are just so many individualized needs to address. These eight ideas they shared are a great way to help us focus on some of the most common accessibility issues within our assessments and show us how to get started. If this sparked your interest for more discussions on accessibility, then stay tuned. Next week, we will be continuing on this Reset Restart journey with a focus on curriculum and an interview with Ocali's Shauna Benson. See you soon.